You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good afternoon. I'm Michael Duffy, opinions editor at large at the Washington Post. Welcome to Washington Post Live. Today, we'll examine the health of U.S. military veterans, both before and after they leave the service, and what is being done now to help men and women in uniform as they transition from one kind of life to another. Joining us to talk about it is the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Kathleen Hicks. Welcome to Washington Post Live, Madam Secretary. Thank thank you so much. Pleasure to be with you. I want to say a word about what it means to be Deputy Secretary of Defense. It's, it sounds like uh, just another title. It's not. It's the number two job at the Pentagon. Uh, it is an unimaginably complicated task uh, that involves m- supplying, maintaining, uh, and planning uh, the largest military in the world. It is generally thought of as the job that uh, the person who holds it runs the building and manages the services. Uh, and Secretary Hicks is the first woman to have this job. Again, uh, thank you for joining us. Yep, pleasure to be here. Remember, we always want to hear from you, our audience. Uh, you can share questions for our guests and thoughts by tweeting at PostLive. Uh, before we talk about health, I just wanted to get in a question or two about the situation in, in Ukraine. Uh, Deputy Secretary Hicks, uh, we saw over the weekend uh, that the there were renewed airstrikes by Russia on Ukraine. Um, uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine said uh, he can we can expect more of the same. His people can expect more of the same. Uh, do you attach some military significance to this uh, latest round of uh, of attacks? You know, I think the overriding. Um Uh, viewpoint here should be that the Russians are clearly undertaking every brutal tactic that they've shown they've displayed elsewhere, whether it was in Grozny, Chechnya, whether it was in Syria, and now we're seeing it in Ukraine, um, uh, really uh, unimaginable pain on the civilian population. Um, That's what I would put as more than military significance around these attacks it shows a level of, of concern and desperation, I think, from the Russians that the Ukrainian will and capability is strong. And I, I think that is, in fact, the case and that the United States and its allies and partners who are supporting Ukraine and standing up for the sovereignty of Ukraine um, are uh, having a demonstrated effect. Uh, and, and that's what the Russians are challenged by. Uh, does this latest round of attacks or threatened attacks, uh, is that li- leading the, the United States to take any new steps uh, to help UK- Ukraine through this, uh, this, this new chapter? Well, we are certainly focused on providing Ukraine um, what it needs, both in the civilian side, uh, outside of the Department of Defense's uh, responsibility largely, but we have plenty of economic assistance, energy support, uh, to, to this very point. And then also we continue on the security side, uh, the Defense Department, among other agencies, um, making sure that we can provide the uh, ammunition material support. Uh, but that also includes things like uniforms, warm weather, uh, cold weather gear, if you will, um, generation, power generation. We've just provided more generators, for instance, to Ukraine. That continues apace. Uh, one last question. One last question about Ukraine. You know, we have the U.S. has provided about 18 billion dollars in uh, security support for uh, Kiev. 
um, and and drawn fairly uh, deep into our own stockpiles, particularly on munitions. Um, do you have any sense yet of how long it will take to replenish those supplies? Uh, is that something you've looked at yet? Well, let me assure you, we look at that every day, and we're very confident in the quality of the American um, uh, defense industrial base. We're working very closely with our partners here um, on the industry side, but also, of course, again, our allies and partners around the world where they have industrial base capability. Uh, so we are very confident of the readiness of our forces, but we will be spending, as you have said, with the $18 billion dollars. The, the, we're, we're expending funds not only in support of Ukraine, but to backfill our own uh, stocks and also looking ahead to the needs of allies and partners who may want to purchase capabilities from the United States. So uh, it, we're very fortunate here in the United States to have built up a defense industrial base over time. Um, and we're really needing that now. And we're going to undertake and are, have already put in uh, with some of the dollars that you've mentioned, significant improvements for our defense industrial base that will benefit not just this crisis and the Ukrainian people, but will benefit the United States in future crises as well. All right. Thank you for that. Um, uh, Secretary Hicks, let's, let's go on to talk about uh, the health concerns of uh, the soldiers, sailors and airmen. Uh, who you were responsible for. Um, the Pentagon, I know, is making efforts uh, to safeguard the health concerns of, of those folks. What are the biggest challenges as you look ahead uh, that you face as you support, um, particularly the mental health of uh, the people who wear uniforms for us? Well, first, let me thank you for doing this event. Uh, it's such an incredibly important topic for us. We've been fortunate to see a decline in suicides uh, from 2020 to 2021 in the force, about 15% decline. Uh, but there's so much more work to do, and we will not be satisfied as long as there is a single suicide remaining in the force. And that includes the family members of the force. And I do want to say right off the top, if there's anyone who's listening to this, watching this today, who uh, uh, is having thoughts of suicide or just wants to talk to somebody in confidentiality, please call 988-PRESS-THE-NUMBER-ONE. That's 988-PRESS-THE-NUMBER-ONE. Um, and there will be someone there to talk to you, again, in confidence. Um, there are really three priorities that we place uh, here at the Defense Department on uh, how we will improve our support for our family members and for our service members as it relates to their mental health. Taking care of people is right at the center, at the heart of what we do here and very focused at the leadership level. And that really takes three forms around suicide prevention. The first is making sure we're fostering a healthy environment. That may sound very straightforward, but it takes a whole suite of capabilities, uh, uh, many people across the whole department to pull that together. And here we're thinking really about a public health approach, a community-based approach to how we um, uh, drive healthier culture and climate. That makes a huge difference, we believe, in preventing the kinds of harmful behaviors that lead to suicide. So whether it's making sure our service members have the skills they need for, let's say, uh, financial um, health and stability, uh, food security, relationship management, um, uh, uh, obviously sexual assault, sexual harassment prevention, and then again, any kind of counseling that they may need um, or be seeking. That's what we want to do in fostering a healthy environment. So uh, that's the first line of effort. And, and as I go back later in the 
questions and answers. I'm happy to give you some examples of the things that we're doing. The second major line of effort that uh, really has us galvanized is making sure we remove any stigma from uh, seeking uh, mental health assistance or any help that's needed in these areas that I've just mentioned. Again, that could be about seeking help for um, your financial stability, relationship management, all the way up to suicidal um, ideation. Um, and so we have a number of initiatives underway now uh, to make sure we remove that stigma, not just that it's not uh, that it's uh, not bad to seek help, if you will, uh, for your behaviors, for your for your mental health, but really that it's a sign of strength. And then the third area is lethal means safety. We have a very strong correlation in the military, about 70% between the use of a firearm and suicide. And uh, with our family members, it's a, a majority, uh, not quite as high as 70%, but a majority of those suicides. So we know, uh, and it's well documented, that if we can create a little time and space between that ideation, that's that idea of having um, concerns about you know potentially committing suicide and those lethal means, uh, obviously firearms being foremost, but also uh, medications. If we can create that time and space, create some safety, um, that that reduces the likelihood of suicide. So those are our three main lines of effort. When you talk about lowering the, the stigma, how do you mitigate that, especially to large groups of people? I think one of the biggest challenges we've faced in the national security community is uh, fighting the assumption that seeking mental health care will create challenges for your security clearance process. Um, and so I put out a memo uh, earlier this year, in May of this year, uh, boldface clearly stating um, that seeking mental health or any kind of assistance is in no way uh, a challenge or will not create any challenges for uh, receiving a security clearance here at the Department of Defense. And I received um, uh, responses from that from, from folks third hand saying how important it was for them to hear that at a high level. And we are able to support that with data uh, to demonstrate that, in fact, it's extraordinarily rare um, for someone uh, to have that even factor into uh, a set of a set of factors that might lead to uh, security clearance denial. Um, the second thing we've done is looked across all of our issuances, which sounds sounds terrible, but here at the Department of Defense, everything we do is codified in a policy like any large organization, a policy, a regulation, an instruction. And uh, I put out guidance earlier this month, November, uh, to make sure that we scour through all of those documents and remove language that stigmatizes. So for instance, uh, talking about um, uh, substance abuse uh, or as opposed to uh, language that is more neutral or um, mental health um, or, uh, uh, instability or mental institutions, uh, language like this that was very normal, if you will, in those issuances maybe 20 years ago, but are not reflective of where um, the behavioral health community is today and how we speak about uh, those who are seeking care and then the type of care they're seeking. So those are a few examples. We have a number of initiatives, again, across the department that are about reaching small groups of people, training them, talking to them uh, close up, again, for families and spouses, as well as service members, uh, to really lower those barriers. And we have found through those pilot projects and uh, places where we're doing this, 
really good pickup in lowering those barriers to people uh, undertaking help. One of the things the Pentagon has done, I understand, in the last couple of years is they've deployed or assigned, signed and deployed some 2,000 military personnel around the world uh, in a kind of uh, almost a suicide, I don't want to say task force, but it is, a, they certainly, that's their mission to try to, have I got that right? And how does that work? Sure. So that's really part of that first line of effort of fostering healthy climates. And uh, we, what we have is what we call a prevention workforce. And this is about that community-based approach, that public health approach to the family of behaviors that we want to um, make sure those self-harm and um, uh, harm behaviors that we want to reduce. So yes, we have uh, worked uh, across a bipartisan coalition in Congress to support the department having a, a prevention workforce that will ultimately be about 2,000 people. We have right now, as we speak, uh, several hundred openings uh, available. And so you just go to usajobs.com uh, or, or .gov, excuse me, and you uh, uh, search per, for prevention and you will see uh, openings all, all across our force, which means all across the world. Uh, for those uh, clinicians, mental health care professionals, wide range of specialties that we will bring to bear to try to look at how we support our commanders who are ultimately responsible for their people and giving them the tools they need to help them. Again, that could be on financial stability. It could be on food security. It could be on uh, relationship issues. All the uh, factors that go into causing stress and harm uh, behaviors, including, including, excuse me, suicide. So we are quite confident that's a very science-based approach that we're using. It's the largest effort like it, like this that has ever existed at an unprecedented scale. So uh, beyond anything, if you will, a university has done or a state has done, this prevention workforce will be a first of its kind, and we're going to do it right here in the United States military because that's what we owe our people and their families. I wonder whether you could talk for a second about whether these issues become more acute or more challenging or just just different as uh, people who have spent uh, a tour or a couple of tours in uniform begin to transition out and back to civilian life. Is that a, um, a, a complicated nexus? Life transition, life transitions are always stre stressors. And uh, we definitely think about that period really about a year before someone leaves the force to a year after someone leaves the force as a period where we really want to make sure we're stabilizing them. Uh, and suicide prevention is clearly one of those reasons. Um, so we've undertaken some initiatives to give First of all, start that transition process early, as I said, like about a year beforehand or so, making sure that our service members understand the resources that they will have after they leave. And then we partner very closely with the VA. Um, so we have a, a, a joint committee that we uh, work with VA through to manage all of our programs. And one of those examples is this year after our service members leave, they still have access to all those same resources that I've just described to you, which are captured in a, a web-based platform called Military OneSource. So we've extended Military OneSource, all of those tools and resources for a year after service. 
Uh, so our service members still have the support of DOD at the same time they're beginning to receive all that support from VA. So we think that sort of two-year approach and then partnering closely with VA to make sure there's a smooth transition is really important to our suicide prevention efforts. I, be I believe you grew up in a military family, am I correct? I did. I grew up with uh, uh, not just uh, my parents being in the military, but several of my siblings being in the military. So uh, very used to military life. And can you talk a little bit about how that informs your work in this area? Absolutely. So in addition to having many military members in my family, I also grew up with a tradition of a mother who's a, 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 a clinical psychologist, uh, worked in the family services centers uh, throughout uh, her time as a military spouse, uh, and, and still to this day talks and texts to me on issues related to family, um, family support and family matters. Uh, that very much informs both why I choose this kind of work, but then uh, how how I implement it, and uh, in particular in this series of issues, understanding the importance of supporting the family, supporting the service members, and all those pieces that go outside of when they leave, when they're off duty and leave the job, what it takes to make sure they understand that they are treasured by the American people and that we're here to support them at the Department of Defense. Um, I was going to ask one other thing about uh, the Pentagon's plans going forward. You've mentioned some of the things you are doing. Are I know Secretary Austin has uh, instituted a, a broad uh, task, tasking to look at what else needs to be done. Can you tell us anything else about what might still be coming in this area? Sure. As I said, we ha are, are um, pleased with the drop in suicide <coughs> rates, but we will not be satisfied until there are no more suicides. And we know there's a lot more work to do be done. That Getting that prevention workforce uh, onboarded, hired, onboarded, trained, and deployed out into the uh, field, that I think is at the top of the list. The secretary, uh, uh, Secretary Austin, also created a um, independent review commission for suicide prevention. That commission is uh, going, which is made up of clinicians, doctors, uh, former service members, current service members. That group will report into the secretary uh, by the end of this year with some initial thoughts and then a public report, we hope, early in the next year. So we're looking at what they might bring forward, areas we might not have thought about that might uh, make an impact as well. And then I would just say I've mentioned several piloted efforts, small programs. We want to really scale a lot of those programs across the force. There, it's a We are a large organization. There are in pockets of innovation every day working on this issue. I lead something called the Deputies Workforce Council, which is a senior forum where we can bring in those pockets of innovation, hear uh, what's working, and then scale that across the force. And that brings us much more quickly and more um, efficiently and effectively to solutions. I want to ask, we only have about 15 seconds left, and this is a hard one to answer quickly, but I know you've been in the building for the better part of a generation. Um, and a lot has changed uh, since 1992 or 1993. Um, uh, but uh, this conversation would have been difficult to imagine, uh, say, at the end of the, uh, at the beginning of the Clinton presidency or the end, I mean, 35, 30, 30 years ago. Would you agree? I think we've always understood that uh, military life 
places stressors on individuals and that suicide was a concern. But it is absolutely the case, just like the rest of society, that suicide has taken on a, a much more significant role um, uh, across society. And our approach to mental health more generally as a society has really matured and grown. And you're right. We in the Defense Department have kind of ridden alongside that. And I think we're I, I come here in this job at a time when there's real opportunity to confront head on uh, what are some of the uh, stereotypes, some of the uh, myths around suicide um, or around mental health uh, behavioral assistance. And we have an opportunity here that we want to seize, and the secretary is very focused on that now. We're going to have to leave it right there. Thank you very much, Deputy Secretary Hicks. It's been great to have you, uh, and thanks for talking about this today. Great. Thank you. The following segment was produced and paid for by Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hi, I'm Kathleen Koch. Nearly 1.4 million men and women serve in the U.S. military today. And of course, their physical and their mental health has a huge impact on their ability to do their jobs, to defend our country. Here to talk with us today about the importance of quality care for our service members and their families is Dr. Andrew Satin. He is professor and director of gynecology and obstetrics at Johns Hopkins Medicine, but he is also a retired U.S. Air Force Colonel and the recipient of numerous military service and achievement medals. Welcome, Dr. Satin. Thank you, Kathleen. Great to be with you today. Dr. Satin, you have been providing health care to the military community for almost 40 years. And as I mentioned, you are a veteran yourself. So what insight does that give you? And what do you see as some of the primary medical needs of our service members today? Well, Kathleen, I've had the honor and privilege of really only working for two organizations in my professional life, but I'm amazed how similar they really are. Um, those two organizations, the Department of Defense, my time in the U.S. Air Force, and for the last 15 years, Johns Hopkins Medicine. And the values that were instilled in me in, in the service still ring true at Hopkins, which is you know, service before self and integrity and excellence in all we do. And, and I think a lot of the, the values of the service are shared by many of the healthcare professionals here at, at Hopkins and our, and our medical organization. People may not really realize that uh, some nearly 16% of active duty military are women, and that actually includes one of my nieces. So you are an OBGYN. Talk to us about women's health services and what in that area, if anything, is unique to the military and their families. So I think one of the facts that really isn't widely known out, outside of military circles is outside a theater of combat, the most common reason to get admitted to a military treatment facility is admission for labor and delivery. And when, and when you think about it, it makes sense, particularly among the active duty force, which is roughly ages 18 to 40 and involves men and women and their families. It, it's a lot of family care, including uh, having children, providing care for, for children, providing reproductive health services, contraception, fertility services, uh, and uh, preventative care to, to prevent uh, diseases that are common uh, in younger folks. What other medical services uh, do you think are essential for military families? Well, one of the things that, that has gotten a lot of focus is the military um, lifestyle um, 
adds a, many stresses that perhaps don't um, show in civilian life, separation, um, military sexual trauma is another one, uh, it's family care, um, it's um, retiree care. Uh, the, the government has an obligation to take care of our folks who've served our country and make sure that they get uh, medical care that they need and deserve. Uh, and um, we're very glad that at Johns Hopkins, we can help collaborate and ensure that those services are given in areas where the military uh, can't meet those needs. So you're saying uh, mental health care is, is very important too? Of course it is. Um, mental health uh, has, got, has gotten the attention it, uh, it deserves lately, uh, both in the civilian and the military community. But in the military community, there are unique aspects, and those have to do with uh, family separations, deployments, uh, um, spouses or mothers and fathers not being uh, near uh, their children, and then you know the the the, the hidden. Um, uh, mental health issues that uh, people bring back from deployments. Yeah, I know it's see we, we anyone who has military members in their family, I think has seen it and I know how tough it is. What other resources exist to help military families regarding their health care, uh, both active duty and retired? So one of the things we're really proud about at, at Johns Hopkins is our U.S. family health plan. One of the challenges uh, for the services has been a combination of, of consolidation of facilities and, and downsizing. Uh, the, the medical corps in the military, the nursing corps, uh, and, the, and the medical services in general are much smaller than when I served. And um, they're at a situation now due to capacity issues where they can't always uh, offer the full breadth and depth of services as they used to. And, and that's where Johns Hopkins has really enjoyed a collaborative relationship with the with the military through our U.S. Family Health Plan here in the National Capital Region and can provide uh, services for active duty families, uh, for retirees in, in the breadth and depth of health care that Johns Hopkins has been uh, come to uh, be able to deliver to many of our beneficiaries uh, across the system, including primary care and even uh, tertiary and quaternary care facilities. How did that uh, you know, shrinkage of available military medical care happen? Was that uh, downsizing, consolidation, uh, the pandemic have anything to do yeah. with it? Yes, Kathleen, I think it's multifactorial. Uh, certainly uh, in my early days in the service, when I think back, Bethesda and Walter Reed were, were uh, separate hospitals, the National Naval Medical Center, Bethesda and Walter Reed, there were several hundred bed hospitals uh, and um, consolidation uh, made sense for, for a lot of reasons. But in addition to that, there's been a, there's been a significant downsizing of, of personnel again uh, across the the medical service corps, the medical corps, the nursing corps, and the ability to to take care of all of the beneficiaries who have been you know, promised health care has been a, a challenge for the service. So at Hopkins, we're really glad to be able to step up and collaborate and, and provide care for military uh, beneficiaries who who need those services. Well, and I'm sure they're very grateful to have you there to help fill that void. Uh, Dr. Andrew Satin, Director of Gynecology and Obstetrics at Johns Hopkins Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Kathleen. And now, back to Washington Post Live. Back to Washington Post Live. I'm Michael Duffy. Uh, Rosie Torres, can you hear me? I can hear you. It's good. Thank you for joining us today. 
Um, we see from your in, uh, from the intro that this is hardly a theoretical issue for you. Please tell us how your husband is doing. Thank you. Well, you know, as as I said in the video, uh, he suffers from something called constrictive bronchiolitis, which is a a war lung disease where um, when you inhale toxins, it desensitizes your airways. So that many times is triggered by exertion. He's been diagnosed with autoimmune issues, um, gastric issues, something called toxic brain injury, very similar to what you see in um, NFL football players, which to them is is uh, carries a diagnosis of CTE. So you know, as I in the earlier segment, you were talking about the suicides. You know, th these are all factors that play into the issue of suicide, um, all stemming from you know, inhaling these toxic fumes. So he's hanging in there one day at a time. He's now on oxygen uh, 24 hours a day, but um, it, it stays in the fight and uh, continues to advocate alongside me and, and our whole team. Talk to us a little bit about what was the point of burn pits and why were they so widespread in Iraq and Afghanistan? The point of burn pits was to dispose of waste the way they do here, you know, in our cities and towns. The difference was that here they safely segregate the trash and dispose of it in a safe in a safe way that that is of no harm to to society and the and, and its citizens. In Iraq uh, and Afghanistan and throughout hundreds of bases, um, it was just an open pit where they threw everything in there. I've spoken to uh, contractors that wish to remain anonymous that have told me that they've seen um, uh, you know in, uh, engines of 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 um, airplane engines like uh, Blackhawk engines or uh, what they use there in the pit, uh, computers, paint cans, blown up Humvees, body parts, like everything was just doused with JP8 jet fuel. And again, they didn't segregate any of it. They didn't dispose of it uh, or or utilize the incinerators that were actually on the base that according to many contractors were more expensive to utilize than just throwing everything in a pit. So, you know, um, back in, 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 uh, during other war campaigns, they had, um, metal, uh, trays and, 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 and they didn't use so much plastic during this war. You had, you know, Dunkin' Donuts, you had Baskin Robbins, Burger King, massive, massive amounts of plastics that that were used during war and then just disposed of in these um, sometimes 10 acre burn pits. Wow. Uh, why did it take so long, uh, in your view, for military officials to recognize the problem that burn pits were uh, causing and um, the impact it was having on the soldiers? What was that? What was the yeah. issue there? The issue was money, right? It all boiled down to money. I think, of course, you know, they were these, I mean, it's it's very public and known that you had contractors like Kellogg, Brown and Root, and several other contractors that were granted these um, these contracts to dispose of waste. And uh, a few, you know, back uh, more than five years ago, there was a class action lawsuit that was brought against some of these contractors, um, and that's sort of where it all started. Right? Was that there needed to be this accountability, accountability for every. United States flag that was being draped over these coffins of these young men and women that were coming back dying from these aggressive cancers, um, many times being um, passed off as somatoform issues, that it was all in their head. It's a very mm -hmm. unique 
position to have been in as as families, as veterans and active duty members. Um, but I think it all boiled down to money. It boiled down to cost. And and there just wasn't that, you know, uh, oversight that should have taken place uh, from the beginning. And I think uh, had it been done, there would have been not as many uh, funerals that that so many have have attended, unfortunately, due to um, the negligence that took place. The Pentagon has estimated that as many as 3.5 million veterans have been exposed to the poisons that emanated from the burn pits. Uh, you founded Burn Pits 360 in 2010. Uh, what does your organization do and how does it help people? We help connect the those individuals and their families that have been impacted by burn pits or any military toxic exposures. But for our organization, initially it started with just uh, the, the exposure of burn pits specifically. So what we do is we connect those families. Uh, we operate an independent registry uh, where veterans and their families or survivors can submit uh, a health entry or a death entry uh, that really has allowed us to move the mission forward of creating policy and legislation such as the recent passage of the PACT Act and the Airborne Hazards Open Burn Pit Registry. So it's really connecting, uh, working with Congress, working with DOD to make sure that these families are served, uh, that they're provided the resources. So our organization, because for so many years there really was nowhere to turn to uh, in, in regards to this issue, we provide information, resources, you know, um, health information, clinical guidelines, and we now have stemmed into, aside from going and 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 advocating uh, in Congress, is providing um, medical supplies such as oxygen concentrators and hyperbaric chambers, and just really helping that community that is suffering so greatly. Uh, and and now, as the VA and DoD move forward in facilitating some of these needs, we're still there to bridge the gap. You mentioned the PACT Act. That's a, uh, a measure that was adopted by Congress and signed by President Biden in August um, after a prolonged battle uh, that was championed by you, of course, and and uh, comedian John Stewart. Uh, tell us what the PACT Act uh, is does, and um, especially for those who have been exposed uh, to the effects of the pits. Well, it does help uh, multi-generational uh, through many war campaigns, such as Vietnam, Gulf War, um, Camp Lejeune, people that were around burn pits during uh, OEF, OIF. And it grants uh, 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 23 presumptive conditions that now doesn't put the burden on the veteran to have to prove. And we're talking about lung disease, cancers, uh, many cancers and many respiratory issues and other conditions that uh, had we not had our own independent registry, I think we would not have been able to reach this uh, success of making sure that Congress considered those 23 diseases. It's very much Marcus. like, hmm? sorry, ahead, I was just saying, very much like what happened with 9-11, right? They started with no diseases and then gradually added more and more as, as science um, allowed them to. I was just going to say, you mentioned the registry, uh, <clears throat> which is a, a something of a database. Um, you guys started it. Uh, what happened next and how do you get people to sign up for it? Sure. I mean, I, again, you know, the, the, the first piece of legislation was that our airborne hazards open burn pit registry. Had we not had these men and women that 
so selflessly, you know, and and willingly registered for, including the the death entries that we were tracking, uh, were able to get us to this point. So, you know, now the VA and DOD have this joint effort where they operate their own registry. The downside to it is that it doesn't allow you, it, it doesn't allow a, a, a family, a survivor to submit a death entry, which we'd still love to see happen. Um, but people can go on to both the VA uh, registry or our registry on burnpistry60.org and submit an entry. We have a scientific advisory board that monitors that registry. And again, like I mentioned earlier, allows us to continue working with the Department of Defense, with the VA, with Congress in implementing a policy that makes sense and that is life-changing and life-saving. Uh, you know, we have a question from a viewer on this uh, issue, but Dave Knack from Virginia asks, uh, what percentage of affected veterans have registered uh, for the burn pit database? Well, I know for the VA, uh, it's, you know, the last time I checked, it was at about, uh, you know, maybe 300,000. I, I can't remember. I mean, there's so much has happened, but um, uh -huh. it's not anywhere near the number it should be at when you look at the statistics of 3.5 million. So we can do a better job at at the outreach and at the advocacy and, and letting that military active duty reserve veteran community know that it actually exists and that it's out there. So um, uh, not, not anywhere near the numbers we'd like to see. What? How does one go about registering for it? Can you just uh, walk us through that in case someone wants to find out more? So for the Burn Pit 360 registry, uh, like I mentioned, you can go on our website, hit the registry tab, and it only takes a few minutes. It's not an extensive registry that uh, requires much, but it does allow us to, like I mentioned earlier, create this uh, real-time uh, with accessing this real-time data uh, policy that makes sense to our community of people affected. For the VA one, you could just go to va.gov and the burn pit registry link should be there on, on the website or type in uh, VA airborne hazards burn pit registry. And it's just become very user-friendly in the sense of accessing the registry. That one does take a bit longer um, and it does require a, a bit more on, on behalf of the veteran. Um, but you can go on to uh, va.gov or burnpit360.org to register for both. And I encourage that, I highly encourage you uh, registering for both both uh, registries that are out there. We talked in the last segment about the stigmas that sometimes are attached to getting help on mental health issues. Um, why do you think some veterans might may be reluctant to register uh, in this database or two databases? I think there's always that fear of... Uh, you know, not so much retaliation, but maybe retaliation through through their benefits or being labeled, right? People, um, there's this mistrust with with the department, and um, and what I've seen so far here this past couple of years, I've seen a secretary who has done an uh, outstanding job in being very transparent with what the VA can and can't deliver. So I do encourage any veteran watching to go to the registry and submit your entry. Um, I think if, I feel that be, we may not be where we wanna be, but the only way to get there is by cooperating and submitting this information that I feel will really pressure VA and DOD to do a better job um, with the way ahead. 
have another question uh, from a viewer that uh, goes like this. Are symptoms from brain toxicity from burn pits on par uh, with concussion symptoms caused by IEDs, improvised explosive devices? And do these symptoms overlap in service members who've been exposed to both? Can you take a swing at that? Um, right. It's, it's, it, it could be both. It could be, you know, from, for example, with my husband, um, he didn't recall being involved in any, uh, IED blasts or exposed or around any blasts of any kind. So for us, it was a little more simple to, to, to target that this was an issue of toxic exposure and, and not both, but for many men and women, it is both. So that really is a lot more, um, pressure on 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 their health a lot more complications you know to the brain that you now you have an issue of restricted um restrictive uh blood vessels in the brain which is what they found on on uh, in my husband's scans in addition to the concussion uh issues and blasts that that have been have impacted the lives of many men and women so we have a lot to do and a lot to learn, and so does the VA and DOD in that side of, of specialized healthcare and the diseases and, and, and health issues that are resulting from inhaling hundreds of, of, of uh, toxic chemicals and fumes. You know, uh, claims filed by soldiers who were uh, claiming to be affected by the burn pits were at, at first or very often in, in the early years in the aftermath of these conflicts, or at least while they were still underway, uh, they were denied by the VA uh, at a pretty high rate, uh, reporting shows, sometimes as many as three and four. Uh, what was the reason for that? And have you seen those numbers uh, improve? The reason, again, boiled down to money, right? After we sat down with members of Congress and John Stewart joined us in in those conversations, uh, you know, it was really our hope that, you know, that veterans wouldn't be labeled as compensation-seeking individuals um, presenting with these very complex issues. I, um, you're right. I mean, it was a high percentage of, of, of uh, claims being denied. Uh, one of the reasons why we slept on the steps of the Capitol when we did, because too many people were dying and there was just this, uh, you know, stigma that veterans didn't want to work or that these uh, illnesses and diseases just weren't weren't real. Um, so I have seen uh, through the data that VA has put out, there's been an increase now in claims that they are granting in favor of the veteran. You now have these these 23 presumptions are working with that uh, will allow the VA to uh, rule in, in favor of, of the veteran who is uh, claiming um, exposure due, due to burn pits or deployment-related exposures. You know, uh, it was a long process, I know, to get the PACT Act through Congress, uh, and you were uh, the tireless advocate in that respect. Sleeping on the steps of the Capitol is not a normal lobbying tactic. Um, uh, uh, what did you learn uh, about how the capital works or doesn't work as a result of that experience? I mean, I learned that, you know, things can be done peacefully. Uh, and the American way is to, you know, really show 
the men and women we elected into Congress that uh, th that our country's war fighters and their families just were not going to sit back and accept uh, that they weren't going to grant us uh, a, an issue, uh, uh, grant us a, a a piece of legislation that would would help save lives. We weren't going to allow um, Congress to play partisan politics on the back on the backs of sick and dying veterans. And so we we learned that that you know uh, uh, it, it was a, a beautiful opportunity to really. Uh, show America to mobilize America uh, 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 on this joint effort um, with with Congress and with the 9/11 community. So I learned that you know that, that it's you can create change uh, if if you don't you know just sit back and accept no for an answer. Uh, it was an honor to be on those steps for six days uh, with these men and women. They taught me so much. Um, I didn't serve. I, I worked for the VA for 23 years, but uh, being able to to lead alongside them and and hear their stories and just the resilience from these individuals was amazing and I, I, we wouldn't have done anything different. We're out of time now, Rosie, but I want to just thank you for joining us and taking uh, time out of your day to help us understand uh, what you've been through, uh, are still working through, and uh, what you've accomplished. So uh, thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.